Good morning. If everyone please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It's located on page 472 in the blue Bibles that are located in front of you. <clears throat> Sorry if you're both with me. I have allergies. Um, also a reminder, if you do not have a Bible of your own, you can please feel free to take one of these home with you. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Thus says God's word. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truths of your word, God, that are, God, just shown to us, sometimes they're shown to us uh, almost explosively with clarity. In such moments as you say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In such places where you say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And yet God, we recognize that sometimes you're revelation of yourself and your will is progressive throughout all the scriptures and it builds to a glorious crescendo that we can see and rejoice in and revel in and such is the truth of your trinity and so god we thank you for this god we thank you that you have revealed this awesome magnificent truth about yourself for us god something that by our own thinking and our own investigation, we never, ever, ever would have discovered about you. And yet you've revealed it to us in your word. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that these truths would not bounce off of us, God, as we once again find ourselves with a familiarity that breeds contempt, God. But these these truths, God, would, would for maybe for some of us the first time be revealed as not only glorious, but deeply important and absolutely necessary to what you've accomplished through Christ by your Spirit. And so we thank you for this, God. We pray that you would make us attentive, give us the ability to hear, give us minds that will embrace these truths and spirits that will fully embrace them. God, we pray for myself that I would be able to preach with clarity and accurately, God, the word of God, and that that we would all be changed in the hearing of it and in the seeing of you that happens when we hear your word. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I um, must do this. It is so good to see Bill and Kristen in service today. So, yeah, go ahead, man. It has been a it has been a 
a tough road for them. As many of you know, Bill had a, a tumor in his brain that was removed surgically successfully, and he's recovering. He is uh, uh, he's here way back in the back there. I'm not going to let you hide from us, buddy. But uh, um, he's uh, uh, he, he is recovering. We got to see him this week, and so we're just our hearts are rejoicing that you guys are here. We love you guys so much, and so so glad to have you. Um, well, we are proceeding as uh, both. David and Gabriel said, we're proceeding through our series where we're considering the attributes of God. And two weeks ago, we began, and we started where we must begin, I believe, by looking at the fact that despite our best efforts, God is completely incomprehensible to us, unless, and this is a big unless, he chooses to reveal himself. We cannot know him unless he makes himself known. And graciously, God has done just that. He's done it in three ways, which we've already mentioned. He did it in creation. He designed the creation to for you to be able to step into its magnitude and say, something bigger than me exists. He did it in the scriptures and through his progressive revelation, starting in the garden and all the way through the writing of the New Testament. He he revealed more and more and greater clarity about himself. And most fully of all, he revealed himself in the incarnation of his son, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, from there, we went to the second week and we saw things that are most fundamental to his being. We saw that he is uncreated, um, that he exists as pure spirit, that he is, because of that, invisible, he is eternal, and he is immortal. And those are things that we'll explain later in the series and explore those things. Um, But being pure spirit, we acknowledged last week that he must be self-existent, meaning that he owes his origin to no one but himself. He's the source of all goodness. He's the source of all life and all truth. Wherever we find those things, goodness, life, and truth, he is the source of those things. We saw that God exists for his own purposes and that all things, including ourselves, were created by his pleasure and for his glory alone. And this makes him, as we saw, the only truly independent being that exists anywhere. As he depends on no one for his existence, he also depends on no one for his sustenance or maintenance. He gains nothing from any created thing, and he has never been deprived of anything by any created thing. By contrast, all creation, including you, including myself, we exist because of first and second causes. As the absolute first cause, all things exist by God's eternal decree. But all things continue to live because of that continued dependence upon God, as well as depend, uh, dependence upon other people. You know, we, we, we live because our, our mothers gave birth to us. We had the instructions of our parents and teachers and, and then, but we also live by other created things. We need food to eat. How many of you appreciate good food to eat? We need those things. We need shelter. We need warmth. We need those things. So we're dependent. Well, in fact, as God is completely independent, we are completely derivative and dependent. 
So, this is what Hebrews means in the very first few verses of that book, in chapter 1, where it says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think just for a moment about the magnitude of that statement, the depth of what that is communicating to us. It tells us that every child that is born, every sun that is currently burning in the cosmos, the feeding of every single beast, bird, and fish that exists in the created order, and the very rotation of the earth itself, all of this depends upon God's sovereign goodwill and the expression of that goodwill through his mighty creative word. That's how, that is good preaching, Bay. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Today, we examine another fundamental truth about the being of God. And the reason I gave you that kind of rather lengthy introduction about where we've covered so far is because this truth of God is a truth in which comes together literally everything we've looked at so far. Because first we have to acknowledge that this is a truth that is hopelessly incomprehensible to us without the instruction and some kind of structure given to this thought from the word of God. And and it's also a truth that magnifies, like few other things, God's uncreated, self-existent, independent, invisible, eternal, immortal reality. And so today, we are going to consider the triune nature of God, which Christianity calls the Trinity. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is simple to state and harder to understand. It states that God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that each person is fully God and that there is one God. This is what the uh, Jews affirmed in Deuteronomy 6-4. The, the Shema, they said, the, they said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we affirm that. So the word Trinity, it, it doesn't just mean three. It means Three in unity, or tri-unity. It means three in oneness. The word is not found anywhere in your Bible, so don't go to your concordance and try to look up all the scriptures that mention the Trinity. It's not found in your Bible, although the word, the, 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 the concept that this word summarizes is clearly revealed to us all throughout the Bible. And this doctrine is, is revealed progressively. And, and can anybody guess where the first time we see a hint of the existence of a trinity is? Anyone want to take a guess? Genesis where? Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God speaks of himself, and he does so interestingly. He speaks of himself plurally. He uses the word Elohim, which is, when it says in the beginning God, it's saying in the Hebrew, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The word Elohim denotes a plurality in God, in God, but never a plurality of God's. Later when he speaks, he uses the plural pronouns us and our in our English translations to Genesis one twenty six. let us Make man in our own image. Now, to be clear, for all of our scholars that may be here today, that plurality doesn't only speak of the Trinity, um, but it also speaks of God's manifold glories, who much it must be expressed 
plurally. His manifold glories, his manifold majesty, his manifold attributes is what we're talking about today. But still, people like Wayne Grudem are convinced that that doesn't give us any reason to deny here an allusion to the Trinity, especially in light of the balance of Scripture, what we find in the rest of the Bible. We see this progressive revelation build when we are introduced to the character, the angel of the Lord. Do you guys remember the angel of the Lord? He was sent to accompany the the children of Israel um, when, when God said, I am not going, but I will send my angel before you. He was sent by God to accompany the children of Israel in their wanderings in the wilderness. And, and the interesting thing about that character, who is called the angel of the Lord, is he is to be given, the scriptures teach, reverence reserved for God alone. That's interesting. If you look further at mention of the angel of the Lord, he speaks as God. He identifies himself with God and he exercises the responsibilities of God. This is why when we see it, we don't see an angel of the Lord. We see the definite article, the angel of the Lord. And most scholars are convinced with good reason that this is an Old Testament appearance of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is known as a Christophany in scripture. Let me show you one of the best examples of this. You remember the story about Abraham? God told him to sacrifice his son Isaac on the uh, on the uh, on the mountain, and and uh, right before he did, when we reach the climax of that story, his knife is raised above his son. His son's laying there bound on the altar, and right before the uh, right at the climax, this is what we read. Notice the characters that are mentioned in this story. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, now watch this quote carefully. Do not lay your hand on the boy, nor do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now was he sacrificing to an angel? No. He was sacrificing to God. We see this clear connection. In Exodus, it was the angel of the Lord that spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. In other places, he opens barren wombs and chastises the people for their breaking of their covenant with himself. These are things a created angel would never do. How do we know that? In the book of Revelation, when John bows before an angel, the angel yanks him back up and says, Do not worship me. I am a servant of the Lord like you are. An angel would not speak in his own name and power and authority as God would speak. But here we see the angel of the Lord doing that. And and you might understand why this terminology, the angel of the Lord, when we're speaking of a a, a appearance of God. Well, the word angel in Hebrew is malach. And malach does not mean a heavenly being with wings and harps and halos, as we've imagined. The word simply means messenger, which is also what the Greek word angelos means. And John tells us, now think about this, John 1.1, it tells us that God, that Jesus was in the beginning, but he doesn't call him Jesus in that text. He says that in the beginning was the word. And so what do we see in that? That Jesus is the import, the, the, the appointed messenger, the malach of all God would say to the human race, whether that is of salvation or of judgment. 
By the time we arrive in the New Testament, this doctrine is fully revealed and established beyond any doubt. We see Christ referring to both the Father and the Spirit as distinct from himself while yet claiming to be God. We see the Father speaking to the Son on three separate occasions. We see Christ sending the Spirit, the Spirit acting in both redemption and judgment. All of these things we'll look at in a few moments a little closer. Um, but, But what you need to understand is that the earliest heresies condemned by the church always centered on the truthfulness of Trinitarian revelation in the scriptures. Always they did. Whether it was specifically Jesus' role in the triune God, some heretics denied the deity of of, uh, the Son. They would say that he was a created being or even the first of the created beings. But, But the essence was that they were removing him from the center of God's triune being. Others made the spirit an impersonal force like electricity, And and so they also denied his personhood and his deity. Others just flat out denied the Trinity at all. And still others removed all distinctions from the persons that exist in this eternal, unbroken unity of love, will, and purpose. But all of these positions by the early church were completely rejected as the church unified around what the scriptures teach and what does the Bible teach about God's essential being. Let's review our three truths one more time. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. And yet, there is one God. So let's look at these things, these three statements, and see if we can be convinced that they're really biblical. First, the Bible clearly states that God is three persons. And the persons that it it, uh, portrays God as are not just modes of the one God, as though God wears different masks to to, uh, reveal himself at different time periods and for different purposes, but each person is distinct in the Trinity. More simply stated, this means that the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are three distinct persons. Now let's, let's go back to our, our scripture from John and see how we can kind of see this truth in that one passage. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now we know that the Word represents Jesus. He'll tell us that a few verses down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God and The Word was God. In this simple verse, we see the Word, or the Son, or Jesus, is distinct from the Father. Because he he, he didn't just say, and the Word was God, he said the Word was with God. He was distinct from the Father. And yet, we are still assured, after that statement of distinction, that he was God. So we have both a distinction and a connection there that we see. Um, We're also told that he's in no way a subordinate or lesser God, seeing that he was in the beginning. When nothing existed but God, guess who was there? Jesus was. He was therefore not created by God, but has existed eternally as God. Many other verses show us that Christ is distinct from the Father, such as when we're told in John, 1 John, that Christ is our advocate with the Father because he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Furthermore, he is distinct from the Spirit because we're told that Jesus will send the Spirit. And, and he refers to the Holy Spirit with the pronouns he, his, and him. He never says me and mine, he says he, his, and him. 
And second, now that we see this, this God eternally existing in three persons, a more important truth is that each person of the Trinity is fully God. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, our Confession of Faith here at Northridge, says that all three persons have the same substance, power, and eternity. Now, we'll look at that more next week. But it says, each having the the whole divine essence without the essence being divided. And this tells us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all eternal, immortal, and perfect in every way. Not to greater and lesser degrees, but all of them in every single way. All the attributes exist in all of them. Every attribute we consider over the next weeks will, will apply in equal proportion to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that is not to say that the Father has a third of them, the Son has a third of them, and the Spirit has a third of them. No. All of the attributes are perfect, perfectly seen in all three, in all three persons of the Trinity perfectly. If we see a single attribute, that applies to only one or two persons, then we've made a grave theological error. We have divided the substance of God. Or worse, we've imagined some portion of God to be created and therefore subordinate and, and, and uh, dependent. But everything the Father is, the Son and the Spirit are perfectly. And so with the, and, and it's the same way with the Son, same with the Holy Spirit. Um, And we don't find, so this is a common misconception, when we look at God the Father, we don't only find justice there. He's not just the God of wrath. And then we look over at the Son and we see love and grace there. No! Both of them, the Father, the Son, and may I add the Holy Spirit, are perfectly just and perfectly merciful all the time and cannot be otherwise. God cannot be other than what He is at any time. And so you find, you find God the Father in the book of Isaiah saying, I have engraved you on my hands. I will never forget you. If that's not mercy and grace, I don't know what is. And then in Luke, you hear Jesus say, yes, and unless you repent, you will all perish likewise. If that's not judgment and wrath, I don't know what is. This doesn't mean, however, that the three persons are not, as we also see in the confession, distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. They've revealed themselves as a God, a single God, that thinks and operates in perfect unity. And yet each displays uh, or, or each plays a perfect role, a specific role in all of their unified acts, their acts of creation, redemption, sanctification, etc., And yet this doesn't imply some sort of hierarchical subordination at all, just distinction of roles. So when you see something in the scripture, which you'll see often, like the humanity of Christ submitting obediently to the Father in all things, what we are witnessing is the Son doing what is necessary to redeem mankind as a man himself, fulfilling all the law. And yet his divine nature is equal to God's. We see this in Philippians 2.6, a scripture most of you are probably familiar with. It says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. In his human nature, Jesus emptied himself of the visible glory to which he was entitled and to which he in which he eternally existed 
so that he could take on humanity and thereby obey the Father and become the suffering servant of mankind as is listed or is prophesied in the the book of Isaiah. It's only by this incredible act of humility on his part that any of us can be saved. That a representative of our race, a, a, a son of Adam, but thankfully a son of David, would die in our place as the perfect, the second, and the last, final Adam. Similarly, the Holy Spirit acts in distinction. Some have suggested, as I said, that he's just God's power or force, but Jesus spoke of him, as I've said, as having personhood by placing him in equal divine stature with the Father and the Son when he told us to baptize how? How do we baptize? In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Every, every morning that we gather on Sundays, we begin with the glory of Patri, glory to be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. When we end the service with a benediction, I always end the same way, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And in all of these things, we see not subordination on the Holy Spirit or not a lack of personhood. We see him made equal with the Father and the Son in these Trinitarian formulations. The New Testament shows the Holy Spirit speaking with authority and in the name of God. We see him restricting the activity of the church. When Paul wanted to go uh, into a certain region, the Holy Spirit told him no. We see him even exercising judgment, immediate judgment, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. We mustn't forget that Jesus... You know, in this idea of the Holy Spirit being God, we must not forget that Jesus declared one sin to be unforgivable. Do you remember what that was? It was to blaspheme who? The Holy Spirit. Can a force, can a power, can electricity be blasphemed? Of course not. Only God can. And moreover, the, the Holy Spirit tells us, or the, the Bible tells us, that the Holy Spirit can be quenched and that he can be grieved. These are clear traits of his personhood. Another proof that all three are fully God is found in their respective roles and the significant acts of God in the Bible. They're all attributed in different places to three persons, all three persons of the Trinity. And this shows unity of purpose. It shows singularity of mind and will. We all know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can all quote that, Genesis 1.1. But we're told immediately after that, what? That the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, bringing order to the primordial, chaotic, newborn world. The New Testament tells us in several places that the Son was the active agent of creation. All of God is to be glorified for all that God accomplishes. You know, we don't say, good job, Father, and you know, we'll, we'll get to you later when it comes to redemption, Son. No, we worship all of God for all that God accomplishes. Let's, let's look at some more. What about the incarnation of Christ? Who's responsible for the incarnation of Christ? Well, of course, Jesus is. But what are we told about Jesus in the most famous scripture that I had said in my prayer? For God so loved the world, what did he do? He gave his only son. So that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. He's saying that the the Father was the active role in the incarnation by making the sacrifice, by giving his son. But how was this going to be accomplished? How would the Father give His Son? Well, 
If you'll remember Luke chapter 1, it's not Christmas. I know I'm creating a major faux pas by quoting this verse. But maybe if I talk like Christmas, it might feel a little cooler in here, you think? Let's sing Jingle Bells just real quick, see if that works. So, the angel told Mary the Virgin, so we know the Father sent his Son. The angel told Mary the Virgin these words, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What is happening in that verse? You've seen the entire Trinity in that single verse. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the child to be born will be called the Son of God. All three persons of God represented in that one verse. Even as our text pointed out this morning, the ministry of Jesus was initiated and ordained by all three persons of the Trinity. We could preach a great message on the baptism of of Jesus. We've done it before, but I just wanted you to see this, that the, the ministry of Jesus was initiated and ordained by all three persons of the Trinity. Jesus, in his humanity, insists that John baptize him. And when John finally consents and John baptizes Jesus, what happens? The Spirit of God descends in the form of a dove, lands on Jesus, and the Father audibly speaks His approval of Jesus from the heavens. This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. But is that all? Well, let's consider for a moment the greatest act of all of our hope. What about the resurrection of Christ? Acts 2, Peter in his awesome sermon, the first sermon of the Christian church, he speaks of this Jesus whom God has raised up. And then if we flip over to to Romans 8, this is what Paul says. He speaks of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. But did you know that even Jesus himself was responsible for his own resurrection? He says this in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down, that I may take it up again. In all of these things, I hope you see the majesty of this, in all these things we see that as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed eternally, independent of any other created thing, that it is their mutual love for each other, their extended love to their creation, that makes the gospel so delightful to our souls. John Piper famously said that Jesus did not wrestle the whip out of his angry father's hand so that he might redeem us. No, before the foundations of the world were even set, the triune God had determined that he would redeem a people for himself. And it's this harmony that makes the gospel so lovely. Acting together in perfect harmony, they've accomplished the salvation of all who would believe and they've done it beautifully. Now, don't get excited, we're not done. But if I were to stop right here, if I just stopped right here, hit the brakes, and we were, and I said, you're dismissed. We would have an incredible picture of God's nature. But if I stopped right here, we could also definitely come to some false conclusions. What do I mean? Well, we could think that if, you, if you're convinced that God has been revealed throughout the scriptures as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you could think, okay, that's easy. The Bible teaches the existence of three gods. But as we've already asserted, there is but one 
God. And there has always been but one God. God has existed eternally in one substance, in perfect harmony with himself throughout all the misty ages unseen of eternity. There's a unit, this is a unity. As much as people have tried talking about eggs and ice cubes and all those silly things, this is a unity that has absolutely no analogy in the created realm. There is nothing I could point to, and the best I could ever do is say, it's kind of like this, but even if I were to do that, I would be so far from the reality of what we see in the Trinity revealed in Scripture that it would be just worth, not even worth your time to do that. It wouldn't help you. It would only give you a false impression of what the Trinity really is. Tozer said this. I loved it. He said, "Don't we don't seek to understand... So that we might believe. We believe so that in some small measure we might understand. The singularity of divine being is affirmed through the whole of scripture, Old and New Testament alike. I already told you that the the Jews in their daily prayers would say, The Lord our God, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Ten Commandments, how do they begin? They begin with God stating that you and I should have no other gods before him. And why is that? Because there is no other God before him, singular. He doesn't say you shall have no other gods before us. He says you shall have no other gods before me, singular. Over and over again, we read verses like we find in Isaiah 45. He says, in in verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know, verse 6, from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. As you wrestle with the reality of what we said at the first part of this message, you must affirm that the Lord our God is one God. But this idea of a single idea is not some abstract thing from the Old Testament. It extends into the, in the New Testament as well. Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God. And he also says in another place, God is one. And James actually commends the belief in one God. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Christianity is a purely monotheistic religion. Monotheism means that we believe in one God. We are not. No matter how you wrestle with the reality of the Trinity, we are not, never have been, never will be, a tritheistic, three gods religion. And it cannot be otherwise. God exists in perfect unity within Trinity. But he also exists as Trinity within unity. The word reveals that this is because of two central truths, which we're going to explore much deeper next week. And it's their perfect unity of essence and their perfect unity of purpose. Because the triune God exists apart from substantive difference and hierarchy, even where you see voluntary and purposeful submission, as in the case of the Father and the Son, it can be said that they have a, that they have a perfect unity of essence. 
They're so closely aligned that there is no division in them of majesty, property, uh, properties, or personal thoughts. Now, when I say that, what did I just say? Let me let me show you. This is something I mentioned the other week. It is so hard with the language that we have been given to state these realities in a way that they are stated truly. I just said they're so closely aligned. But that would define that somewhere, even though they're really close, somewhere there's this division, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And even though my language almost presses me to have to say it that way, that is not the way it is. They're, They're closely aligned because they are one. Now, explain that to me. Come on. Man, y'all are a bunch of chickens. I'm up here just dying and you guys won't even help. I'm kidding. When we say that God has no division of majesty, properties, or personal thoughts, that is to say that their glory is not a shared glory in, in the sense that it's equally distributed between three distinct beings. Father gets a third, Son gets a third, and the Holy Spirit gets a third. But what we talk about when we talk about their shared glory, we're speaking of a singular glory. Jesus prayed this to the Father in the, uh, uh, on the night before he was crucified. He said, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. As we've said that God has no parts, their very essence is the same essence, with the, with the small exception of the human nature that belongs to Christ alone in his mediatorial role. And this is why Jesus said, the reason, when we talk about their same essence, this is why Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The will of the, the will of the Lord is also singular. It's not threefold. Therefore, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send you in the name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Do you see what's happening there? there there's this, there's such a unity. The reason Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own will, is because in truth, he doesn't have his own will. He has a perfectly united, harmonious will that 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 exists with the Father in total concert. It, it, it just never is, there's no dividing place between the will of the Father, the will of the Son, with the will of the Holy Spirit. Now think about this. Think about the absurdity of that. Most of you who are married, when you got married... I've done this a thousand times myself. I said to you, you know, and the two shall become one, and what God has joined together, let no man separate. And we know that that's a powerful symbol. Paul says, I'm speaking of Christ in the church. But I am telling you that in the oneness I share with my wife, Sometimes her hurt feelings, my hurt feelings, our bad attitudes together, sometimes that just rips that unity apart. You know why? Because I want one thing, and she wants one thing. Now y'all pray for us, because I know that we have the worst marriage possible in this room. I know that. I know none of you, all of you are scratching your head saying, what is he talking about? You don't want the same thing. What is is he talking about? But what, even though God gives us that marriage as, a, as a, a, an analogy of our unity with Christ, there is no need for such an analogy in the person of God 
Because there's never a desire for the Holy Spirit says, I think we should go this way. And he gets outvoted by the Father and Son. That's never happened. It never will. There's perfect unity of purpose, will, desire. Just just delight. They delight in the same things. I don't know about you, but I like that. So with what analogy? I've said this already, but with what analogy can we explain such unity among three distinct persons? Have you ever, ever, ever seen such unity among three human beings? I'll even make it easier for you. Have you ever seen such unity among two human beings? Even the ones you love the most? You haven't. Never. It's not happened. Every analogy breaks down and fails at some point, either in showing a a, a symbol of perfect unity among three created beings, or when we have three things and we try to attempt to recognize them as one. You'll hear sometimes, you know, a, a group of leaders say, we were of one mind on this thing. Well, just give it some time. Just give it some time. Someday that's gonna fall apart. Usually sooner rather than later. We have to resign ourselves. As the subject is introduced, we have to resign ourselves to embrace and affirm what the Bible teaches, even if a perfect understanding of it remains just beyond our comprehensive grasp. Now next week, I said, we're going to consider, we're going to dig deeper uh, into this idea of why God must be triune. And we'll see that for us to trust anything about his truth or redemptive power, his, his triune nature is absolutely necessary. Now, I, I wish that, you know, I could have told you all about the Trinity in one, one week. Truth of the matter is I'd need about five or six, seven or eight years. And so all I'm promising you is in our series on the attributes, we're going to scratch the surface of the surface of the surface of the surface on this wonderful thought. But I hope you'll be there for that. As we do that, let's resolve to believe so that we might understand. Let's resolve to cherish deeply this awesome truth, to meditate on it thoroughly, and to lift up exuberant praise to our triune God for his manifold glories. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Holy, 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 merciful and mighty God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you that you have revealed this much to us and and though our hearts long for a full a fuller understanding even if we dare not long for a full understanding god we pray that we would just trust you with the truth of this and rejoice in it and we lord lord we pray that whatever you've given us in your word to see about the glory and majesty of your triune being would be clearly revealed to us so that we might rejoice so that we might love you more deeply and understand you more fully So God, I thank you for this revealed truth. Father, I thank you for all of your mighty works. I thank you that you sent Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that in your unity of purpose with the Father, you obeyed 
And you obeyed to the point of death. And now you have been exalted with a name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your faithful work of going throughout all the world and calling the elect. And sanctifying them so that they will be presented holy before Christ in the last day. We thank you for your unified work. For your glorious, majestic name, Yahweh, I am that I am. And for this we give you thanks. Amen. Ask our communion helpers to come and join us at the front, if you would. Um, We're about to receive um, this this renewal of the covenant um, at the Lord's table. And um, what a great... uh, If you want to see the unified work of the Trinity... For God's glory, look at the cross, look at the empty tomb, look at Christ reigning at the right hand of the Father right now, and you'll see it just just in perfect clarity, and so as much as we can. And so I want you to just, as you come this morning, I want you to give thanks that God has saved you, not imperfectly, not against uh, you know, forces that he could not overcome, but that he has, he has welcomed you into his family because of the united work of the three persons of the one God. And so, um, as, as you come, think about that. But I want to also just tell you, as I always do, if you are here, and if I could just urgently plead with you, if you have not put your trust in Christ as Savior, if, if you have not given your life uh, not just to his role as Savior, saving you, but as Lord, to be the one who has authority, to call the shots, to direct your steps, then I want to just encourage you to just stay in your seat. This is not because of some, you know, overwhelming uh, desire to restrain you or restrict you from something that is good that we should share with everybody. But it's because it would mean absolutely nothing to you. And as I say, every single week, it could actually mean your condemnation. The Bible says that those who take unworthily um, eat and drink condemnation to themselves. And so don't, don't chance that. But way more importantly than that, we have been praying for you. And we want you to come to know this Savior. And so I can't encourage you strongly enough. If you want to know more, if you want to ask some questions, we are not afraid of hard questions. Ask Pastor David, ask Gabriel, ask myself, and um, we would love to visit with you after the service. But for the rest of you, come and receive these elements. Take them back to your seat joyfully, and we will receive them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's take a moment and really give thanks to the Lord for what he's done through Jesus. God, we thank you. God, you are the reason we have gathered today. We thank you for the inexpressible gift of Jesus. Jesus, we have no words 
no words from now throughout all eternity that will rightly express our gratitude for your sacrifice. We thank you that that you became poor so that we might become rich, that you were uh, condemned and accursed so that we might be justified and set free. We thank you for that. Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing to us the remembrance of Christ's words, his deeds, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his reign, his ascension and reign. We thank you for that. We stand humbly before our one God and we give you praise. And we pray that from this day forward you would empower our praise and help us to glorify you in a way that truly brings you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. I just want to read a very short benediction over you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.